and and early on, you know, we didn't have data sets to support this. So it was really just slowly building relationships. So then fast forward to, you know, 2017, I mentioned we had a Sunnybrook engagement. So they said, yeah, if you bring us breast milk, we'll do these extractions. So I had to get milk. Now, Hey, we have Viraj here from Latka. Viraj, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Ravi. Did I get that right, Lactica? Lactiga, yeah. I Lactiga. mean, it's a made-up word, so there's not like really a correct way to say it. It's just whatever we want to do. No, startup names are so interesting. They always follow a convention of being different, right? It's kind of, right. The, kind, of, kind of the thing. Um, so where, uh, where are we finding you? Where are you calling from? Also in Toronto. Perfect, just also in to Toronto. Um, I love this because, uh, man, your company really stands out. I was reading the bio. Um, and uh, it really drew, drew me in, Went, did, did, did a little bit of a deep dive, uh, uh, you know, of, uh, of what you're doing. So using human breast milk to convert, uh, to, to solve autoimmune deficiencies and, uh, and, and issues, really interesting. Um, I'm really interested in, the, in, the, in this field and uh, learning more about it. So I'm really intrigued to dive deeper into this with you. So, you know, to start, uh, I mean, how did you get into this field? Um, what's, your, what's, your, what's your path look like? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think for many of us founders, like we're focused on the technology, but it came from a human story or a personal story. And that's definitely true for me. So I'm a dad and uh, my daughter was born about eight years ago. And like most parents, at some point, the mom is, you know, pumping and sometimes it's late night pumps and you don't use it all. So it starts stacking up in your freezer, like just pouch on top of pouch. But unlike most dads, I'm also a very nerdy scientist. So I would see these pouches and I was like, well, there's, we all know there's a lot of nutritional value locked inside these pouches. But as someone with uh, genetics, uh, immunology, virology, molecular bio background, I looked a little deeper. I was like, well, these things are also chock full of antibodies, which are the molecules mm -hmm. we naturally produce to keep ourselves healthy. You know, if we're immune competent. There's this whole range of immunodeficient or immunocompromised people, we'll talk about who those are, that mm -hmm. they actually don't make enough antibodies. And just as you'd expect, they get sick way more often. So way back then, I used to see all these pouches and it was just sort of, well, if we have extra, probably a lot of you know families with, with breastfeeding babies have extra. And if there is actually extra all over the world, like what happens to that? Do they just toss it out if they don't need it? And if they don't toss it out and it's available, what if you could extract the thing we care about, which is antibodies, you don't really need the rest. And what if you could position that as a brand new therapy? And because milk is obviously meant to go down the throat and into the stomach, I mean, it's stable. Those antibodies are stable in, in that environment, even though there's acids and proteases all around your stomach environment. So I thought, well, that's something pretty interesting about breast milk. And you know, the research literature already knows this but it hasn't been put into a clinical product, not that I could see. So I said, what would be the smallest amount of studies to at least prove to myself that maybe this is worth pursuing? And uh, that brought us to Sunnybrook Institution here, brought us to SickKids. And these are investigators and institutions I knew just because of my business development work around the GTA. Hmm. So I started reaching out and I said, there's just this idea in the back of my head. You know, I have nothing yet, but if I did these small studies, could you do this part? And like, could you help me with that? You know, what might that cost? What might that look like? And that's really how we started. That was, you know, that was about four years now. Wow. No, um, I love this a lot because I, I nerd out about you know, immunology as well. Oh, um, perfect. Just, you know, just cause you know, I've always been like, when I was a kid, I was sick all the time. Right. Uh, I had to get over asthma. I had to like, I had to, I had to deal with all, all the, all these, all these issues that it just seemed like things that compiled against me. And I started looking into this. Right. And, and uh, you know, I have a neuroscience uh, background myself, and most of it came from this obsession with understanding the body and the mind and how everything works, and like you know why we make the decisions we do, why we do things we do. And one of the things that really shook me, really, is to learn that like in the human body, one in three cells, up to one to th one in three cells, is not our own. It doesn't share our genetic uh, history, right? So our body mass, one in three, one third of us, is other organisms that live kind of in a in a, in a symbiotic relationship with us, right? And it's like, we are like a farm almost, and it's a whole bunch of things we like breed within us that kind of build their own ecosystem, and we benefit from that ecosystem. And a lot of our industrialized processes and industrialized things kind of disrupt that thing, they disrupt that, uh, that ecosystem a lot, right? Um, so I'm really interested in this kind of framework of thinking of like us being a vessel, 
um, being more than just like uh, us is actually compartmentalized, right, into so many different parts. And uh, looking at things from this kind of lens, we kind of ha adopt a new worldview on how health should look like, right? We're not just taking care of ourselves, but the ecosystem that we live in and the, and things that interact with us. Does that, uh, you know, does that blow your mind? Or does that take up a lot of your mind space? Do you think about that a lot as well? Because that, that blows my mind thinking about things like that. Yeah, yeah. What, what a fascinating concept. We'll definitely get into it. And by the way, thanks for sharing your personal connection to, you know, immune disorders. I mean, um, as much as we really have to focus on different aspects of the technology and the business, for me, it's like, well, if this isn't going to wind up in a patient's hands or in their home in some way, like that's the only goal here, right? Everything mm -hmm. has to lead to that. So I try to remind myself, like the, the patient is the focus. Everything should be leading towards that. Um, and then your point about we are a vessel full of all kinds of stuff. Some of it is our own cells and our own growth process, and, and then there's everything else. Uh, you, know, you can think of homeostasis or, or maintenance of the gut biome. These are some of the phrases that have become very popular in these last couple of years. And, and it's such a perfect example of what we're thinking about because the crisis of antibiotic resistance, which has been in the news for years and years, but it sort of recognizes this clear and present danger from the medical community. That if we keep using antibiotics, the tiny percentage of bacteria that escape and can still survive despite those antibiotics now are superbugs or superbacteria because mm. th they've already outgrown uh, that particular antibiotic. So what happens? You don't use that as much. You go to your next level, which is like, well, these are our reserve antibiotics. We were hoping to not need these. And what happens? Well, now we need them because the, the bacteria have outgrown the first line defenses. And that's an arms race and it's going to keep going. So... What's more likely to happen? Humans run out of antibiotics first or bacteria keep mutating and growing? Well, mm -hmm. they're going to keep mutating and growing because that's what they do. So we are going to run out of antibiotics way before we hit that critical mass. And so one piece of what we're doing is restoring the components that, that healthy people produce to actually try to restore that balance in the gut, just like you were saying. So you can keep certain pathogenic species in check. The fact that some of them persist and grow is actually good for us. There is that synergy, as you said. But when mm -hmm. it comes to the pathogenic ones, you do need to control those. Now, these milk-derived antibodies are perfect for that situation because they are raised in the milk of lactating mothers who are responding to all the viruses, bacteria, uh, fungi, and parasites that they're encountering in their environment. So the ones that could cause illness are the ones that antibodies are produced against. And then for harvesting those, providing those to patients, we're providing that protection to them. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, um, I think that one of the key distinctions to understand the difference between like, you know, antibiotics and antivirals and like the idea of like boosting um, your immune system versus uh, something that's like, you know, replacing it. Like modern medicine is almost like, cool, you know, th these are our solutions for these problems. And it's like it comes in with carpet bombings and just flatten the playing field. I'm like, OK, now we're walking away. Um, and the problem is, after we, we flatten this forest, the first thing that comes back up is weeds, right? So the problem with like uh, autoimmune diseases is that it's that when your immune system is suppressed or turned against you, the problem is that it's the things that everyday things becomes an issue about this, right? So people experiencing chemo understand this, where it's like, oh, now you're more susceptible to like everyday bugs when your immune system is compromised and brought down. Can we can we first just take a moment to talk about autoimmunity, uh, autoimmune diseases, and autoimmune issues? There are different types, and like, can you establish what that is for us first, and then we can talk more about um, how we're solving it? Yeah, yeah, such an important point. And I'll draw a distinction as you know, an immunology nerd who spent a couple years at the FDA really digging into topics around immunology. So there's autoimmune disorders, which is actually different than what we're talking about. That's when aspects of your body are basically attacking themselves. Um, and so that you're creating reactivity against something that's not foreign. It's supposed to be normal and healthy. So that's autoimmunity. What we're focused on is something uh, quite different, which is immune deficiencies. And so they make too little of something that could have protected you against foreign invasions. Uh, so there's this very large category called primary immunodeficiencies. That's a bucket category. It actually includes over 350 diseases. Now, of those 350, some of those patients are totally normal, except that they're missing one thing. And in many of those cases, the one thing they're missing is a type of antibody. And an even particular subset, the thing they're missing is the types of antibodies that happens to be naturally abundant in human breast milk. So that's a slam dunk for us in terms of mechanism of action. Because if the only thing wrong with them is that they don't produce enough of these antibodies called IgA antibodies, 
And that's the second half of our company name, by the way. Lact, and then IGA, so Lactiga. That, that's kind of yeah. a, that's, that's an Easter egg shout out for all the nerds who can like <laughs> you know who can put the, the two parts of the name together. But IgA antibodies are missing in these particular patients who have an IgA deficiency, and uh, human milk or breast milk is chock full of that exact type. So that's great for us because we can say, well, these are naturally occurring. They're already in high concentration. If we can extract them, press it into, let's say, a tablet or a pill uh, or some, some other easy oral uh, formulation, you can get that right into the gut compartment so that the thing that's missing has now been introduced. Mm -hmm. So speaking nerd to nerd, can we compartmentalize that a little further, like downwards? Like, you know, what is IgA and what, what particular comp what does it do for us? Yeah, great question. I, I, I didn't know we'd be doing a, you know, a nerd deep dive, but like, I'm always ready for that. I'm always Let's waiting for people to ask for that. So good, yeah. good for you. But uh, so, so we as humans make five different antibody subtypes, IgA, and then there's IgM, IgG, etc. The one we're most interested in is IgA because it's, as I said, it's the one that's already naturally abundant in human milk or breast milk. Now that IgA is very distinct compared to all those other ones. Uh, number one, it's produced primarily in mucosal spaces. By mucosal spaces, I mean the sinuses, airways, and the lungs, and then the gastrointestinal tract. And the inner linings are, you know, kind of slimy and mucousy. That's why they're called mucosal compartments. IgA is the predominant subtype in, subtype in those compartments. If you think of traditional antibody uh, biologics that the pharma industry makes billions of dollars off of, those are typically IgG antibodies, which um, is the type that is predominant in the blood. So we're actually creating antibody therapeutics, but they are really significantly differentiated and they don't behave the same way as these serum-derived IgG antibodies. That's really good for us because the product we're developing can do things that those other existing monoclonal antibody therapeutics cannot do. Specifically, we're talking about the kind that's already stable in the gut. And like I said, it's very acidic, it's protease rich. So most stuff you throw down there, it's gonna be digested and destroyed. We're talking about the only antibody subtype that's naturally resistant to the effects of those acids and proteases. So it's perfect. We're, we're leveraging the fact that they already have these naturally bioavailable and biostable properties, unlike other antibody types that are out there. So that's we're sort so of using cool. nature as a competitive mode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely using what works and what's already available. I love this. Um, and also, to, you know, it's, yeah. uh, like staying on the nerd topic, like you have to engineer these and you have to, you know, refine these and purify them. But the more manipulations and the more additives you, you put into this mixture, I mean, you're changing the costs, you're potentially compromising the activity of what you started with. Our approach is, why would we do that? Let's <clears> leverage <throat> the properties that are already there that we won't require extra additives and manipulations. Yeah, definitely. And that puts people at ease too, right? It's less manufactured, less... Uh less of a foreign substance entering your body and more something that's already there you're magnifying um, or there's anything that you already have uh, have had uh, exposure to. You know, breast milk is something that most of us uh, are, uh, uh, have come in contact with, right? And um, so going back to this, right, like um, um, IgA and uh, what it does for us, like I, think, I like that like, you, know, you, you mentioned that this mucus component, right? It goes into the sinuses and it goes to the mucosal layers, right? Um, like lately, like over the, it's become the most fashion to talk about inflammation, right? It's almost like a fad. People don't know really what, what it is, but inflammation being the cause of a lot of a lot a lot of our issues. We talk about you know, reducing inflammation as one of the key components of active body health, and then we have like you know, advocates of like alkaline water and uh, on all these things, you know, demucify yourself, you know, reduce inflammation. There's so many different things going around about inflammation, right? Like, um, does this idea like uh, you know play in that kind of environment of inflammation, reducing inflammation? Um, is there, is there um, a component there? Like, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a really good question. Wow, we're really going deep on the nerd stuff. I love this. <laughs> but uh, so if we think about the infections that are commonly happening in the gut environment, which is the infections we're trying to prevent, well, what is actually happening? You know, some type of pathogen, whether virus, bacteria, fungi, parasite, etc., has gotten into the gut and is starting to replicate. And it's you know replicating it more and more, and uh, that that growth becomes exponential. So now there's a lot of whatever there was, and many of them actually secrete toxins as well. So the bacteria can secrete bacterial toxins. So not only are there bacteria growing, but they're literally depositing toxins into your gut compartment. And both of those processes can drive some of the inflammation that you're talking about. So while our product is not specifically an anti-inflammatory product in the way that some of these pharmaceutical products are you know marketed it does still have 
it should have beneficial effects because it is cleaning up the infection. And if you're removing the bacteria, then you're removing the source of those toxins that were causing inflammation and other immune responses. So a phrase I used before is restoring homeostasis or restoring balance to the, the gut microbiome. And, and, and inflammation is definitely a component of restoring that balance is getting it back in into check. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, 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 the biome part is, it's something that uh, it's really spectacular, right? Cause um, currently, at the, I, I, I believe like the the best way of restoring gut biome is um, is excrement, right? Like you, you take like 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 a pill of someone's uh, healthy guts, someone with a healthy guts poop, right? And uh, I think it's um, the the Hopkins uh, Hopkins uh, University, uh, Hopkins uh, John Hopkins in the states, the hospital slash uh, hospital uh, you know co-invented this. And it actually like you know pays people in the area to donate, yeah. and uh, collects healthy gut biome through like you know a pill of poop, and that's that's how it gets restored, all right? Like that's that's currently the environment we live in, and like we we live in an age of lasers, but uh, we have to ingest <laughs> excrement in order to like restore uh, our gut, and that's that shows kind of like how behind we are in this level of science and thinking, right? Um, previous like you know. We think about like you know the, the older kind of types of uh, of of, um, of uh, health, right? Like the the the, the pre-scientific thinkings, and we think about yeah. oh, you must like take care of yourself. You had to, you know it, it focuses a lot of homeopathic th uh, aspects, and science kind of for a hundred years wrote us off as like witchcraft. It's like Absolutely. no, this doesn't make any sense. We have to be regulars, and now we're kind of relearning this kind of aspect of ourselves that we live in like a larger context, right? We're interconnected. Uh, to other things that have impacts on us. And uh, I think it's really interesting that we're now, uh, you know, <laughs> now we're able to manipulate that too at that level. I'm so glad you mentioned this because I feel like it's more of a philosophy question than a medical technologies question. Um, and it, you, you made this point actually a few minutes ago. You said when you give especially strong antibiotics, you're kind of carpet bombing the gut and you're hoping that the correct things will make it back and whatever was making you sick is now dead. I mean, you're kind of hoping. And you're sort of using this, you know, bomb strategy to achieve that. And that's, you know, these are antibiotics there. Some of them are naturally derived and others are, are chemically synthesized. So it's, it's quite an artificial approach. And that has been kind of the interventional approach of, I think, Western medicine, just as a very general statement. Whereas, um, you know, East Asian principles of Ayurvedic medicine and some of these other concepts, my understanding from the beginning was they're much more about holistic attitudes towards the body not as discrete compartments that sort of each is like a piece of an engine that just does one thing but there's actually a larger functioning unit and supporting let's say the gut might have benefits to mental health well you know traditional western medicine you probably wouldn't make that connection because they seem so different so you might not try it but with non-Western approaches, I think there's much more willingness to take that kind of um, attitude. And, and I don't pretend to know that world very well, but I would say that our approach really is about restoring balance and uh, sort, sort of a nuanced way rather than saying, here's a specific bomb or weapon, and this is supposed to neutralize everything. Rather than mm -hmm. that approach, this is like, well, it's about restoring the balance that could have been there if these patients were producing antibodies the way they normally do. And those antibodies are direct reflections of the environment uh, that the people are exposed to because you only make antibodies against pathogens you were exposed to. So there is kind of a nuance and a back and forth. It's not like an antibiotic, which is where you just sort of introduce it and it blows everything out of the water. That's a very different, that's not a balance. That's just sort of like a weapon. So I love that you brought this up. Um, that's something I want to run by you, right? Like, especially now we're down this topic uh, of, uh, of like things that can disrupt us and things we live with. There is a particular type of brain parasite. Um, it's a type of class called uh, peons or prions, right? Prions, uh, yeah. right? And we've just recently discovered these things exist. Uh, there's one in particular that really stands out called uh, taxoplasma, plasma, right? Uh, taxo something. And uh, it's a it's a parasite that has a life cycle normally with rats and and, and uh, sorry mice and um, cats, right? So they they reproduce uh, and, and live in this in this ecosystem where uh, they can only pr reproduce in uh, the cats and in the gut of a cat right and it gets excreted uh, they what they do is uh, they create a certain um, their, 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 their their babies come out in the cat's urine but it flavors that the, the, the so uh, the, the the urine sorry so what happens oh sorry uh, let me take this back it comes out of the uh, of the cat's excrement infects mice 
and then turns uh, in the mice it makes them sexually uh, attracted to the smell of cat urine <laughs> so that cat so it, it also depresses their fear reflex right and makes mice more more likely to like follow a cat and therefore get eaten so therefore the taxoplasma that's in the mice can reproduce in a cat and the cycle starts again right so it's this is like a like almost a, like an unsatient uh, like system right that's like helping cats it doesn't affect the cats at all right but it, it brings like a, a food to it keeping it alive right it's like a it's like a like a furial monster that's like helping it right uh by you know by retraining uh by reprogramming rats and then use the, uh, the in return use the cat to reproduce yeah. but in humans so humans who grow up with cats are likely to get this uh it, 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 if, if it gets in it resides in the brain uh, excretes a type of protein that makes you more likely to take risks. And in fact, wow. it's shown that majority of entrepreneurs have the, the, this bacteria <laughs> in their brain, making them more risk-taking, right? And one of the highest concentrations of people who have this, this, this prion is in France, which originated the word entrepreneur. Wow. Right? And this this fact, like, I don't know what to do with this idea or this, this, yeah. this, this thought, right? Like, it's like, it comes back down to like who are we and who's making the decisions right like in neuroscience we're trying to like the, the hard problem in science is trying to figure out what consciousness is right where does it reside you know we 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 science we think it's in the brain but we haven't actually found the compartment layer that operates that consciousness right and i started looking at humanity as like a sense of layers that operates there's a neocortex layer that you know operates that that what we that's us Right? There's a subconscious layer that's the hormones that release all the hormones that controls the hormonal productions and that's reliant on our uh, on our emotions and our emotional staking and very unconscious behaviors right through the mammalian cortex. Then there's a the spinal cord. Then there's, there's this gut biome right that interacts with us. Um, oftentimes the things we crave when we crave food it's just it's not us who actually crave it. It's a it's like you know there's about one-third of the type of amount of cell uh, neurons in the brain is in the gut transacting with uh, with the gut biome there and the and as bacteria get hungry they excrete these hormones that trigger these these, these neurons to go to your subconscious and be like hey i want a cookie <laughs> you know I, I want that tim hortons like tst tea right like when we crave things it's a gut that is sending a signal that's making you remember something that makes you crave that thing and then now you're you're manipulating the environment around you using your your active your capability as a human to go and get this thing for the bacteria that uh you know does benefit you in the end somehow right but you're you're, you're being triggered so who controls who what is this vessel uh that that's uh, that, that we're housed in right how is it actually run because there seems to be a multiple of systems like you know fighting for fighting for uh you know collective behavior Another big uh, philosophy question. I love this. Um, and that toxoplasma example, I mean, nature is so bizarre and crazy. Mm. I love it. I, I just sort of recently re-remembered to just watch like National Geographic. Uh, I think earlier today it was like a clip on um, ants devouring a slug. It's just mm -hmm. so many crazy stories out there. But to your point, yeah, I mean, <laughs> guess I guess philosophically you can make an argument that we're this like large uh, mobile and, and uh, cognizant sack of muscle that does what colonies of bacteria think are good for them i guess uh, i guess maybe a, a comedian could make a good argument for that yeah the, you know as you said that there was actually a movie uh, back in the uh, late 90s early 2000s uh, i think bill murray uh, acted in it it was like this zookeeper who was super filthy right and it, it was told the the principle uh, the, the perspective was from white blood cells that lived in his body that had to fight off all the stuff that he kept ingesting into him. That, that right? is funny. And it personified the, the type of systems in the, in the body and, and how it has to interact, you know, with the outside world through this human layer, right? And it talks about like levers in the brain, like how the different systems hack levers to recontrol him, to push him away from, the, from... Oh, I almost lost you for a second. Can you see me? Yeah, I see you, we're back. Um, that, yeah. That's really funny. And actually to try to bring it back to the point you were making about um, like different systems and systems of complexity and, and like the fact that we're talking about the origins of the word entrepreneur. One, if I could pick one thing, I think I'm maybe like a little bit better than average at is like just appreciate there's going to be complexity. 
Mm. Um, you know, there's a, a challenge you want to address as an entrepreneur. And like, oh, if I could do this one thing, I could solve that one thing. Okay, but that's way too simplified, right? So yeah. for me, it's like as soon as a question comes up, I'm sort of thinking up other questions because like I know there's complexity. So let's, let's whoever I'm having the conversation with, let's acknowledge there's going to be more nuance and complexity than we thought. Even if we started with a very simplified question. And for me, it's like the challenge is let's just dig in. Let's just get our hands dirty and say, you didn't satisfy me on this part. So we need to dig deeper. And guess what? When we talk about that deeper topic, one of us is probably going to realize another branch off of that. So now that created another layer of depth. Mm. Um, to me, I mean, if you're not thinking that way in terms of growing your business, you're going to get stuck because everyone can like form a simple hypothesis. As a scientist, that's the first thing you do. Mm-hmm. Form the most simplified hypothesis that you can test it because all the other variables you've controlled or you know, you've excluded them from the experiment. That's good. That's an important framework. But in the real world, especially in the health technologies world, there's patients, they have economic needs, you know, personal needs, uh, there's, there's medical complications. So that, if that's the reality for them, how could you ignore that, right? You have, to, you have to acknowledge that and you have to respect that and build those complexities into your solution. That, that's been yeah. my approach. Yeah. So let's let's go back to that. You know, like, you know, you already knew the story with like, you know, you had the supply of breast milk that, uh, you know, that you that you that you had. Like, how did that turn into a company? How did that turn to a startup? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to share some uh, very awkward, um, you know, you know, early founders do things that don't scale just so you can kind of prove a concept. So I'm going to make that very real for you. So as I said, I sort of just took this th- uh, thought process. Like, well, if we have some milk and like um, other moms I've spoken to are in the same boat, so there must be this stuff in the world. How might you access that? And I started learning about milk banks. So everyone has heard of blood banks, but not many people have heard of milk banks. Just to give you a, a few few uh, stats in bullet form, there's over 700 milk banks around the world, about 32 in North America, about four of those are in Canada. And the purpose of milk banks, you can probably guess from the title, is they actually procure that extra milk from all those moms that produce that extra. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, the preference in terms of all health and public health agencies prefer and encourage moms to breastfeed their own child. I mean, that's basically the gold standard for, for neonatal health. And if they're achieving that, but these moms still have a bunch of extra and it's still stacking up in the freezer, well, that's great. That's a resource that's now available. And that's what mm-hmm. the milk banks can access. So I was learning about that process and I started just doing cold outreach to executive directors of milk banks just to say like, hey, I'm slowly starting to put together this vision. The beneficiaries would be these patients, but you as a milk bank director could play this role if we had some kind of supply framework. And and early on, you know, we didn't have data sets to support this. So it was really just slowly building relationships. So then fast forward to, you know, 2017, I mentioned we had a Sunnybrook engagement. So they said, yeah, if you bring us breast milk, we'll do these extractions. So I had to get milk. Now, I was many years past the birth of my daughter, so we didn't have any of that milk available. So I started just asking people in the GTA who happened to have some immunology background, like, here's this concept. If I had milk, like, I would do these studies and I could build out this proof of concept. And like the first two people I asked, amazingly, were like, oh, my best friend just had a baby. Like, let me ask her. She probably has extra. So wow. these, these Toronto moms wound up being cool with that. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to remember like where I was in my life at the time, but I don't think I even had a car. So, and it was like too far to like TTC. So I like rented a zip car to drive to a lady's house that I'd never met because remember, this is a friend of a friend. Mm-hmm. So I'm knocking on the door and she opens the door and I'm like, oh, hey, I'm the guy that's here to get milk. Like, I'm really sorry. Is that okay? And I felt so awkward, but, yeah. you know, like you had to do it. That's the thing that doesn't scale. Yeah. And they were so cool with it. I think in one case, it was actually the, the dad, you know, the husband. And uh, he's like, uh, can I help you? And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm here for your wife's breast milk. <laughs> And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. She, she kept it aside. Let me go grab it. And I love it because there's these super awkward stories. Yeah. But it's what got me the early samples that I brought to Sunnybrook. So we did the extractions. We proved we could get these antibodies. And that's kind of what it took. That's that's really interesting because like you know you don't see these like uh, you don't see these, those stories right like when uh, exactly. when you see like the front page article come out I'm like look look at this invention that came out like look at this innovation <laughs> um, behind the scenes stories right that's so interesting so exactly you you're at Sunnybrook you got access you procured access to this uh, supply supply chain um, what happens next how did that turn into like you know um, IGA yeah. 
Yeah, so then it became more of like a, an iterative scientific discovery process. You know, I, I did the awkward milk pickups, brought it to Sunnybrook, and I really just uh, designed out experiments that were based on, okay, well, in the world of uh, blood extractions, and, you know, blood antibody extractions have been done for many decades. That's a different clinical product. Mm -hmm. Since it's out there, I said, well, let's start from that. How could we modify that? How could we create novel intellectual property to protect what we're trying to do and, and mm -hmm. you know, provide it? try to create a competitive moat against existing companies that are experts in blood and could potentially just like, you know, outcopy or, or, or outperform our procedures. So the goal was to say, what modifications is it going to take to process milk instead of blood? And like, can we be the ones to own those modifications and those processes? And so that's what we did with the protein lab at Sunnybrook, which is to say, you know, this is how it's done in blood. Let's let's test these modifications. If this allows it to work in milk, then hey, I think we're onto something. And that's kind of how that went. So we went to Sunnybrook for that work. We actually worked with another Toronto startup uh, called uh, Vivavax, mm. and they're also in the biotechnology space because we wanted to characterize this extracted IgA that we had gotten. And then I leveraged uh, this great researcher at SickKids Hospital, who I had a working history from my previous biz dev role. And I said, you know, you're in uh, pediatric respirology and virology. I have this thing that could work in the gut and the lungs. Could we do some early testing in your lab? Because I know you've done studies that could help us answer this question. He was more than happy to do it. And so we actually leveraged three different Toronto area research institutions to generate our patent enabling data sets. And it was really leveraging connections I had made both professionally and personally uh, over the many years that I had lived in Toronto. So power, power of network. I think most entrepreneurs know that, but you know, if you're not keeping your relationships and friendships warm, like you're really missing out. No, I 100% agree. Like it's it's one of the most underrated things that we we fail to fail to teach people is that hey, you are who you know, right? Like your your knowledge base is not just your own. I mean, talking about the network effects, you know, of our biome and how different things are interrelated. We are in an ecosystem, right? And people we know are part of that. So uh, you know, I, I love thinking about it in that way. So cool, you know, you did this research, you got the support, um, to make this into a company. Are you an entrepreneur? Uh, are you a serial entrepreneur? Have you done this before? What, what would that look like? This is definitely the first time taking it as far as what we've done. Um, mm -hmm. And the short version is we actually have some venture funding. I'm really excited about that. And we've closed about half of our seed fundraising target. Amazing. Really had to learn all the ins and outs of company formation and then how do you structure around you know, like a seed round is totally different than a Series A. So what are the differences? How do you negotiate with investors who do this for a living? Like they could outshark you, you know, in their sleep. So like all these thoughts are in my mind. And by the way, I've taken zero finance or business related courses in my entire life. I mean, it sounds like you, you have a business background, but you also do neuroscience. But for me, I was sort of like straight bio and genetics and molecular bio the whole time. So there was zero part of my curriculum that covered any of this stuff. So it's really just being self-taught um, for some of those things, like the, the company building aspect. You know, I knew from the get-go, if you can create a patent, that's amazing. In the biotech space, that's kind of table stakes to be a very mm. serious early biotech. Get some intellectual property, get some good data, but you know, that's less than half the story. If you're not describing the vision, the you know, the, all these cheesy words like total addressable market. I mean, so these sort of common jargons that are used in the business community, I mean, I sort of recognized at one point, I can't avoid answering those. If I don't understand the business fundamentals, no one's gonna take me seriously. So how can I start building those out? And, and luckily, I, I, I think the current generation of entrepreneurs is much luckier in a way than someone like at my age or older because everyone these days grew up with like cell phones and Google, like it, that's just a normal resource that didn't exist when I was, you know, finishing up uh, undergrad. Um, so the ability to just learn about finance terms and then like pull up the market data that actually supported our use case for these very specific niches of immunodeficient patients, you know, every piece of research I've ever done has been free. I didn't have to like go to libraries and access the Dewey Decimal System. I mean, like that just doesn't happen anymore. So the mm -hmm. ability to access things instantaneously was such a game changer. And it's just, you know, being smart about, are these credible sources? Are they consistent with other credible sources I've seen? If you can do that, I mean, now you're starting to put together a story that it's very difficult for people to poke holes in. Yeah, I love, um, I love what you're talking about, because you're talking almost like a scientist who's building a company. And, you know, you're, you're coming from a science background, it makes kind of sense. 
Uh, I agree with you on the, the challenges. Uh, There's something that I personally experienced myself. Um, and the reason I seem to have a business background is because I have an executive uh, uh, MBA from three failed companies from the ages of 17 to 25. <laughs> Um, I started. I started my first company with only a, a back. Only my high school, I, like one uh, course in accounting in high school behind me, and spectacular failures in handling um, uh, finances as being a CFO of my first company, right? And the failure of that is what sparked me. Be like, oh my God, I gotta go learn this stuff. I go figure this out. And being on the tail end is not fun. Being able to tail end of chasing knowledge that you don't know is not fun, right? So. Um, I, I love the the, the way you where you thinking about it because you're almost like okay like um, like any, any kind of science problem you kind of develop a hypothesis you kind of figure out what are the, what are you working with you tally things out and you kind of go about it right um, so uh, one of my favorite uh, thoughts recently that came out of the podcast was from Travis Ratnam runs an ed tech company and he talks about like uh, you know startups are really laboratory experiments they're not smaller versions of a large company they're they're laboratory experiments. And people who think as scientists or engineers do really well in this because what you're doing is running experiments, but in a systematic way, right? Yeah. Including how to commercialize it. You know, is it can, can this thing be used in this kind of product for this kind of market? Do we position it like this? How do we explain this aspect of it, right? Like you're testing out different things, even in the in the way of getting something out there, right? Um, can we, can we talk a little more about that? Like, how is your framework around? Okay, cool. How do I get this to market? I've, we've discovered this principle. How do we commercialize this now? Oh, I love this question. So I'm going to throw in an analogy that seems like it's out of nowhere. But I, I love reading about cars, like sports cars, you know, family cars, whatever it is. Just love learning about them. Uh, I've owned some like pretty you know, sporty cars. I've been happy about that. But the reason I bring this up is when I was really young, the really just way out there concepts they had a name for the sort of small labs that existed like inside of gm let's say those working on you know like the corvette zr1 and they would the informal name was skunk works and i guess that word means sort of like you know it's just kind of like ragtag yeah. bunch of weirdos and rebels and they're sort of inside a corporate structure but they don't really report up to corporate supervisors and and they have a little bit of a blank check to just try something crazy and if it doesn't work like they might shut down the project but you know mm-hmm. high risk high reward and I love that word and that concept. And, and honestly, I think of startups in general, but our approach as that as well. Now, we're not inside a corporation, obviously, but the point is we're kind of building the rules. We're sort of creating a playbook that if this could be sold or could be acquired, that would make sense. And we would want to engage with existing incumbent pharmaceutical companies at some point. And then we'd have more of a corporate story because you have to kind of sell it to them so it makes sense. And that's fine. But because we're not there yet, just like you said, we can just test and iterate and, 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 and experience those failures. And I, I don't even really use the word failures in the startup world. It's just more like these are experiences. And if they were teachable moments, then that's great. That's so different from a failure, I think. I love that. Um, I think uh, agile, lean, like ac- ac- acknowledging that you're going to make mistakes and, and some of them won't work out. But at the same time, the next time you encounter that problem, whether this startup or some other future startup, you're probably not going to make that mistake. So you're going to seem so much more savvy the next time that set of decisions comes around. Yeah, I mean, going back to like, you know, why why science or STEM-minded folks do really well in startups is because exactly what you said, right? Like failure to other people are considered to be like the end block. But in science, it's like failure is like, okay, it is actually what you want, right? Like a proof of no or this doesn't work is just as valuable as learning experience as yes. Right, and you kind of it helps you kind of steer you in, in the right direction. It's like the next the step forward. If anything, science is chasing failure to failure until you you know you map out what doesn't work, right? And uh, when you deploy that into into the kind of the startup world, it's like comes into into, into how fast you can uh, kind of iterate and, and move out and push things out. Um, I love that kind of framework, right? Of going about as like problem solving vehicles. That's what startups are, and, and what you're talking about, like a skunk works, right? Like the open innovation industry. Innovators in general, like, you know, why do we have incubators? Why do you have all these support structures? Why do you have this? It's because the innovation industry uh, in total, it's almost like the skunk works of our larger economy, right? Absolutely. Supported by, pillared by the government, by corporate partners, by all these people who are taking bets on entrepreneurs like yourself who can come up with these company, kind of companies, right? Can you talk a little bit about the support structure that's around you? Have you gone through incubation systems, uh, accelerators? Uh, How does that look like for you? Yeah, I, I always love giving shout outs to the people that have really made a difference. I mean, to me, the top of the list, and they all happen to be mostly like GTA area um, uh, resources. Uh, the first is the Launch by You program from YSpace. 
just an incredible job. It was a summer boot camp, and and it was like the whole summer. This was last year, so during lockdown, they had to go fully virtual. You know, it was their first time having to do it that way. And uh, so there was masterminds, there was entrepreneurs and residents, there was mentors, there was like business fundamentals. There was just such a wide variety of resources that they provided. And by the way, no fees, no equity taken. I mean, literally zero downside, only upside. I I still think it's kind of incredible. And, uh, you know, the mentors that I met um, span from restructuring a pitch deck using a professional graphic designer who actually um, you know, tweaked a lot of our pitch uh, uh, graphics. Actually, our logo that's on our website and our materials is from this graphic designer. Um, different mentors just helped with pitch support and the narrative because as a scientist, like I could talk science all day, but compressing it into a really quick story that would resonate with a total non-scientist in the way I needed to, I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of difficult for me to do. I'm not great at that. So there were just so many versions of support that came through the Launch by You program. Um, Mars Discovery District has been good to us. They've made some excellent connections, some, you know, challenging, um, you know, challenging topics, even things like the specific terms. I have this term sheet. We have a lead. I think they're interested. Like, are they going to beat me up on this term? Should I sort of like agree to it because it'll get me to the end goal or should I push back? And just having those discussions. And in all those discussions, it has to be about you, the founder and your company. There's not like a playbook, like just plug in these numbers and you'll be fine. That's not going to work for you because then you haven't personalized it to your needs. Um, so just understanding those terms and having the confidence to to know that, okay, I'm going to have a discussion just on terms with these lead investors. And as a first-time founder, the first fear is, well, if I get this wrong, they're just going to say no. Or if I push too hard on certain terms, they, they're the ones with the money. They can just leave. They can, they can like reject the deal. So it feels like a lot of pressure. But balancing that by saying, you have to project confidence and you have to stick with your guns and convince them of your original evaluation. Because if you don't believe in the value of the company, why would they? So it became like for me, fundraising and understanding finance in general became so much about psychology and confidence and like these soft skills really had nothing to do with a finance background or telling a technically, you know, scientifically, technically compelling story. It wasn't about those that much. It was just about like, how do you convey the right amount of confidence? You don't want to be arrogant, of course. And we closed all our funding during lockdown. So it's all been on Zoom and phone calls. We didn't even have the in-person, let's get a coffee vibe that most investors have become accustomed to pre-lockdown. Mm. So, you know, those soft skills, um, looking people in the eye, I mean, body language, a little bit of that shows on the screen and the rest of it doesn't. So, you know, you ignore those soft skills at your peril. That's that's really interesting. The soft skills, you know, this this uh, fixation on soft skills development has become more and more parallel, and it's 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 hilarious because you know we're in the most uh, um, you know um, technological advanced age ever, and we're talking about soft skills being the main skill to have, right? Like everyone yeah. thinks about, oh no, I need to learn to code, I need to know how to uh, to you know to uh, to interface with AI. On one side, you're absolutely right. But at the end of the day, humans and be able to co- be a, cooperations is our biggest asset, right? The ability to cooperate with other humans and the soft skills to communicate our values, our principles, and our, our vision for all what we're building is super important, right? And the people that we have around us, especially the infrastructure we have, it's super important. I love the uh, the YU team, uh, you know, David Kwok and uh, Nafis. Now, uh, you know, he does, a, you know, they do an amazing job. Uh, Mick B's been on here a few times. Uh, I know you That's mentioned right. him as well. That. Right, like I love, I love Toronto's uh, ecosystem because it's full of people who are, who truly want to see the region and people in it succeed. You know, um, the way I way I see innovation in startups is that yeah, you know, here are here are these things that's going to go out and potentially make a lot of money, but a lot of them fail. But even in that failure process, you're seeding a larger environment. It's like you're launching these ships, and even though some of them burn and crash, others others make it, and you and you watch that. It inspires others to take off, and it it, it just it just creates a cycle of everyone trying to create these things. And, and the point is, in, in the, all this interaction, it just lifts humanity up. It lifts our society up. Everyone's pushing in different directions and getting us together. So when we have common resources like this, like Ysbase and Founders Institute and these kind of things, it really seeds like a larger framework. You know, our 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 our, uh, our selection pressure humanity has and our society gives towards how far up can we go up in, in you know in, in building new things. So 100%. I give Toronto very high marks on that because um, I'm from the U.S. originally. So I've mm-hmm. talked to 
plenty of friends and entrepreneurs in bigger American cities. And, and the impression I got, you know, I don't have proof, but this is what I've heard, is that they're much less likely to have the level of non-dilutive, you know, no fee, no equity resources the way we have in the GTA. So I don't take that for granted. I've tried a couple of them and they've created real value for me. So I appreciate that. Yeah, that's actually really surprising, right? Like when you talk about um, the U.S. accelerators and all these programs, you know, this headline is like uh, Y Combinator and all of them, but they do take a stake in the company. They take equity. They 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 want a piece, right? And and yeah, it's one point. You know, you feel like okay, you have supporters now that they have this, but again, you know, you are giving out a piece of your idea, a piece of this, right? And uh, it, there's uh, things to, uh, things that are not appealing about that. So. I do want to go back to a science question, you know, and this one that really bugs me, you know, I love what you're doing here. And I just want to tap in your mind state, right? This idea of like, uh, of like our biome and, uh, and immunity, right? Like uh, through, through, uh, through searching immunization pro uh, projects like yourself and uh, through learning about this kind of things, we're seeing a new framework for the human body, right? Like how it exists. How does this affect your daily life? Like how do you, how do you, uh, how do you train on like, you know, principles of how to live? when you know how uh, immunization works and how your body works? Like, how do you think and regulate your day? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I guess I'll give kind of a, a dorky dad answer, which is, you know, I'm raising a daughter, uh, she's about eight and a half, so to me it's like almost all of my decisions are th through the lens of, is this healthy for her, is it enriching for her? Um, and, you know, nutritionally, emotionally, um, you know, like c cognitively uh, stimulating, like through that. So. With that as my lens, I actually find myself seeking out diversity of experience, like diversity of nutrition, meaning let's try different foods. I mean, she, she's loved sushi since she was about a year and a half, which is perfect because I love sushi too. So like I always have a sushi buddy. Um, so there's the nutritional aspect. In terms of experiences, I just try to like expose her to enough diversity where she can form her opinions one day and like not do so many sports but just like stick with what she loves and she's actually like this like budding young soccer champ so that's clearly a good fit for her but we tried a bunch of everything else too like i, I have her out in the park running football routes i have her running slants and diagonals um, <laughs> and i love that i, I yeah. was like you know you don't get a snack until you make that catch mm -hmm. <laughs> so you know diversity of just athletics and of course scholastically like look you got to pay attention to different topics and you have your schoolwork and I'll work with you uh, as well. Um, it can sometimes feel a little exhausting, but I think I've also just gravitated towards that natural rhythm of like you don't have to over schedule everything, and not just her but myself too. Like I've also and maybe this is a better answer to your question. I have learned so much more in these past couple of years to listen to my own natural rhythms in terms of like sleep and like alcohol intake and, and working out, stuff like that. It's like, oh, maybe I planned to work out this evening, let's say. But then a friend I haven't talked to in a while calls and they're like, oh, I'm just gonna have a beater and like talk to this friend instead. I'm not gonna beat myself up about the fact that I skipped this workout. You know, I'll just do it the next day. I think there's a lot of rhythms that it makes sense to listen to. And you've come across all these like apps and, and tools that are like, sort of like micro schedule every part of your day. Um, I don't think that works for me because it's just extra work to schedule. And then like, well, what happens if you miss it? Are you supposed to like push it 15 minutes later? Or are you supposed to cancel it? And then like, well, if you're going to cancel things, what was the point of scheduling in the first place? So my attitude has been sort of like accept diversity and, and let that guide your life. And the most important things like nutrition and school and athletics, they'll probably get done. And some of the secondary things like, oh, I was supposed to make a new food today or I was supposed to like, you know, go to this specific place. If that didn't happen, okay, that's not a big deal. I think I've become a lot more zen as I've gotten a bit older that your life doesn't need to go according to plan because who set that plan in the first place? It's just an arbitrary list of stuff you, someone decided you're supposed to do. Who's this person that I'm supposed to listen to and do things in an exact way? Like, you know, that person is me. I get to make the decisions. Hmm. I love that. Um... Yeah, so I mean, speaking about this, and uh, and uh, you know, especially as an entrepreneur, uh, how does how does that reflect from what you previously used to do, right? Like now you're running the startup, you're running around learning different things, operating. You have family, you, you know, you, you know, you have you know, you have a daughter that you're very involved with. How do you prioritize your time? Like, what what are the what are the shifts and changes that uh, you're experiencing, especially now with COVID, everything's virtual, right? How yeah. are you dealing with things? Well, to the first part of your question, like how did this compare to previous, you know, more traditional roles? I'll start with that one. And I think the coolest part is, 
you know, obviously as a, as a founder of your own company, you own all the mistakes. Like you're just kind of eating that. There's no yeah. one else you can pin it on. But the things that seem promising or the things that work really well, like you get to, you get to own that too. And I think that's great. And that's really different from some of the previous jobs I've had. I've gone through academia. I've had more corporate type roles. I've had several nonprofit roles in the Toronto sector, but nonprofits that were structured kind of like corporations with just lots of hierarchy and a lot of reporting requirements. And it's easy to see after a while that some of those activities are, they can feel a little bit arbitrary, like checking the boxes. I had one role where we had to fill in, you know, weekly reports. Uh, monthly reports and then you know semi-monthly reports it just like felt like every time you finished a report you were due for the next one so after a while it's like how am I supposed to do actual work if I'm supposed to write reports about the work I was doing but I wasn't really doing work because I kept writing the reports about the work I was supposed to be doing it just felt like this weird circle like like being on a hamster wheel and never getting off whereas for now and I've taken the same philosophy I just told you which is like I'm not going to really hyper-segment and schedule every 15-minute chunk of my day because I'm going to decide in a given morning or a given hour, this is important and this could actually move our business forward. So let me just do this and let me kind of take this all this other clutter and just push it to the side. Like if I'm, if I'm writing a, a proposal for, for grants or responding to investors, you know, that deserves my time. And maybe I had something scheduled, but I'm going to push that because this investor like is really motivated. The faster I can respond, the faster we can close the deal. So I, I think uh, agility has been really good for me. Like have a schedule, have a plan. That's always good, but be flexible as well. I mean, who's going to judge you for missing, uh, you know, a 15 minute increment of a scheduled block if you, it's your own company? I mean, like there's no one else there to, to, uh, to, to judge you for that. If mm -hmm. you felt that you made a decision to be more productive and more mission focused, then I think you did the right thing. I love that. That's such a, that's such a great point to end it on. Um, Raj, man, I really appreciate your time and taking this on. I've learned a lot through this conversation and, and uh, I really appreciate you allowing me to like dive deep into like different aspects of this mentality of this movement that's going on right now. I uh, really enjoyed learning more about you and your company. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Ravi. I had a great time with you. Appreciate Perfect. it. Awesome. Stick around. We'll do a quick debrief. And uh, for everyone else, thanks so much. Okay.